Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures with us as we continue to investigate Jesus and Paul's favorite topic, the Kingdom of God. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself the question, what exactly is the Christian gospel? What must I believe in order to be saved, to embark upon the road that leads to immortality in the kingdom? What did Jesus mean by the phrase so often found on his lips, the kingdom of God? When did you last hear a preacher or evangelist invite us to repent and believe in the gospel about the kingdom of God, as Jesus invited his audiences to do in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And that passage in Mark summarizes the whole ministry of Jesus. It's a concise and compressed statement about what Jesus was up to. His whole concern was the preaching of what he called the good news or gospel about God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is the heart and center of the Christian faith. It must be so, because it's the way in which Jesus described the content of his own gospel message. We have to remember that Jesus is the source of salvation. He's the one who first preached the gospel. We find that clearly stated, for example, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, where salvation and the gospel is traced back to its beginning in the ministry of the historical Jesus. Now, a certain amount of confusion seems to have hit the Christian public on this vital issue of what exactly the gospel is. There are some who seem to think that the preaching of the gospel did not begin until Jesus died, and that Paul really was the originator and author of the Christian gospel. Now, that cannot be true. It's contrary to the plain New Testament facts presented to us in the writings of the Gospels and also in the writing of Paul himself. You see, Jesus is the one who came preaching the Gospel initially. Jesus is the one who is the arch-exponent of the Gospel of salvation, the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, Paul made a most significant statement. He pointed out that all true teaching is the teaching that is based on what he called the sound or healthy words, health-giving words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything that departs from the words of Jesus, therefore, is contrary to God's will. It's as simple as that. Jesus is the exponent of truth. Jesus is the agent of God, God's Son. He is the vehicle of the very words of God. God his Father is the one who taught him the message that he was supposed to bring to the public, and that message is everywhere described as the gospel about the kingdom of God. We could add also that the kingdom of God is really the overarching as well as the underlying theme of the whole of Scripture. From the very beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, God has a kingdom plan, what we might call Operation Kingdom. From the very start, when man fell into disobedience, God launched a plan, as he indicated in Genesis 3, verse 15, in which he would eventually send a famous descendant of the woman, of the woman Eve, that is, who would reverse the tragedy which had been caused by Satan's intervention and his deception of our first parents. And so the kingdom plan is what is being prepared and worked at throughout the course of the Bible. 
God, in fact, gives us in the Bible his unfolding drama of the kingdom. There's a conflict going on between Satan, who does not desire human beings to achieve immortality, and God, working through the prophets and later through Jesus himself, offering to everyone who desires to believe in the teaching of Jesus the promise of immortality in the coming kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is described in the book of Mark and in many other passages as the coming kingdom of our father David. You will find that verse in Mark chapter 11 and verse 10. On that occasion, you will probably remember that they were approaching Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11 verse 1, and Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately they'll let you have the colt. And so these two went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Jesus was making there an entirely explicit claim to be the Messiah. And the crowds recognized this fully, and they said, Praise God for the coming kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of our father David. Now, this episode demonstrates in the clearest terms that Jesus was, in fact, claiming to be the promised Messiah of Israel and that he was fulfilling a prophecy found in Zechariah in the ninth chapter, in fact, of Zechariah and verse 9, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That, of course, means Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's to say, the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now that prediction of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is fulfilled then in this episode in the Gospels. Now the question is, were the crowds right to recognize Jesus as Messiah? Were they right to be celebrating their national hope? Were they right to be joyous over a very Jewish and yet a very Christian thing? Well, of course they were. The Bible leaves us in no doubt at all that this was a glorious event in the life of Jesus. It was a fulfillment of God's plan, one step closer to the coming of the kingdom, which, of course, has not yet fully come, because Jesus has never yet marched into Jerusalem as a conquering king in order to govern the world from the new headquarters that will be the Jerusalem of the future in the new earth of the coming kingdom. Now, we know that that episode in the Gospels was most pleasing to God the Father. Not only was it a fulfillment of a prophecy given in Zechariah 9, 9, but it was a clear demonstration to those people in New Testament times that Jesus was and is indeed 
the promised Messiah of Israel. And so in Luke's version of the same story in Luke 19, we read that some of the Pharisees among the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, tell your disciples not to celebrate this messianic event. But Jesus, in fact, sided with the crowds there. And he said to the Pharisees, I tell you, if these people become silent, the stones will cry out. You see, even nature itself then could not contain its joy at this marvelous event by which the Messiah was going into his city, the city that belonged to him. Of course, at that stage he couldn't take it over. He couldn't rule from Jerusalem. The authorities would not allow it. In fact, they crucified him in Jerusalem. And so in verse 41 of Luke 20 we read that as Jesus approached the city, humble and riding on a donkey, he wept over the city and said, If only you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now these have been hidden from your eyes. And he went on to say that the days were going to come when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, does this mean then that there will never be an event by which Jesus enters triumphantly into Jerusalem and actually becomes king there, sitting on the throne of David? Of course not. It was the crowds that recognized that the kingdom is indeed the coming kingdom of our father David. That's the proper definition of the kingdom of God. It's a thoroughly Jewish definition. But we Christians have to get used to the idea of our Savior being a Jew and we must understand him in his Jewish environment. Some apparently would rather think of the kingdom of God as simply a kingdom in the heart now. But that's not the definition given by Jesus, and it's not the definition that will fit with the Jewish environment in which our New Testament documents are written. Remember that Jesus told us to pray, Thy kingdom come. And the kingdom that he had in mind was no different at all from the kingdom here expressed by the crowd as the coming kingdom of our father David. Now what those crowds, of course, did not understand fully at this stage was that the Messiah had to come to die first. But that didn't mean for a moment that he wasn't coming also to rule and reign on the throne of David in Jerusalem. After all, the announcement that Gabriel had made to Mary before Jesus was born was precisely this that the Lord God would give him the throne of his father David, and he would rule on the throne of David forever. You'll find that in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. And so if we put these three verses together, the famous phrase in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. And then the phrase in Mark 11, verse 10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father, along with the promise made to Mary, that Jesus is indeed to be the recipient of the throne of his father David. We will see that the New Testament is a thoroughly messianic and Davidic document, promising then that this Jesus of Nazareth will indeed return to rule in power and glory from Jerusalem and from a restored Davidic throne. Now, there are some of us Gentile Christians who are very unhappy with this Jewishness of the New Testament documents. 
They'd rather turn Jesus into a Gentile type of saviour who doesn't belong on a throne of David in Jerusalem. But that's to defy the very plain evidence of the Bible. I've even heard it said that there's no thousand-year reign coming in the future. That needs to be examined most carefully. In Revelation 20, we read of a time when those who have been beheaded will come to life. Those of us who read plain English will see that if you're beheaded and you come to life, that's a description of resurrection from the dead. It's not a description of conversion. You're not beheaded and then coming to life at conversion. You're beheaded and coming to life in resurrection, real, literal resurrection, a return from death to life. In Revelation 20, verse 4, we read that John saw thrones and people sitting upon them, and the power to judge was given to them. And then he saw those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And they came to life, we read at the end of that verse, they came to life and began to reign with Messiah for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not come to life, in resurrection that is, until the thousand years were completed. Then he goes on to, to explain that that event by which those who were beheaded came to life is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in this first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign as kings with Messiah for a thousand years. Our time is running out for today, but we leave you with that exciting passage in Revelation 20 for your meditation. Call us at the telephone number to be given at the end of this program. We have some free literature of your personal study on the kingdom of God at home. Join us again as we continue to probe these vital questions about immortality as Jesus offers it to us in his good news about the kingdom of God.